Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman and I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. And I'm happy to bring you this special edition of Occupied Thoughts, consisting of a conversation we recently hosted, looking at how an effort to redefine anti-Semitism to include criticism of Israel is affecting Palestinians. This conversation took place as part of our ongoing series centered on the problems and impacts of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's working definition of anti-Semitism, which includes a number of examples that conflate criticism of Israel and anti-Semitism. You can learn more about this issue on our website, www.fmep.org, where you will find past webinars, podcasts, and other resources on the topic, plus notices for upcoming events. The conversation we are bringing to you today features three Palestinian Americans in conversation with me. Dima Khalidi leads Palestine Legal in its efforts to defend free speech for Palestinian activists, including and especially on college campuses. Ahmed Daradik is a student at Florida State University who was attacked with charges of anti-Semitism. And Dr. Sharin Sayali is a professor and historian who has insights into how this definition of anti-Semitism stands to further erode classroom instruction. Without further ado, here is that conversation. Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Lara Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace and I'm very happy to welcome you to our webinar today. This is part six in our series on the IRA definition and the fight against anti-Semitism. Today's webinar which, webinar, which we are co-hosting with Palestine Legal, focuses on the impacts and implications of the IRA definition for Palestinians. Uh, just quick background, as a reminder, the IRA definition we talk about, IRA stands for the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. And as we've been discussing throughout this webinar series, the IRA's working definition of anti-Semitism, including its examples, is on its way to being adopted and used across the globe where it poses a serious threat to free speech. From the State Department, to English Premier League soccer teams, from universities to social media platforms, platforms, concerted campaigns to label criticism of Israeli policies and challenges to Zionism as anti-Semitism and to impose formal and legal consequences continue to gain momentum. In today's webinar, we will explore the unique and urgent impacts of the IRA definition on Palestinians. Palestinian and Arab scholars describe the IRA definition as, quote, a stratagem to, de to delegitimize the fight against the oppression of the Palestinians, the denial of their rights, and the, continue the continued occupation of their land. And while the IRA definition affects many people in various ways, Palestinians are especially targeted by the implementation of this definition from attacking their activism and advocacy on their own behalf to labeling as anti-Semitic expressions of their identity, their lived experiences and their history. This insidious dynamic is especially visible on college campuses where students and faculty face campaigns that undermine their rights to constitutionally protected freedom of speech. So last week we held a panel deliberately featuring only Jewish panelists and we focused there on the impact of the IRA definition on Jews and Jewish communities. This week's panelists are all Palestinians. We are focusing specifically on the effects on the efforts to redefine anti-Semitism, especially through codification of the IRA definition on Palestinians. So we have our three panelists. They bring expertise, experience that highlights different facets of the struggle. I'm gonna introduce them very briefly in alphabetical order. You can read their full bios on our website. First, we have Ahmed Daradik, and Ahmed is a 
third year student majoring in international affairs at Florida State University, where he served as a student senator. He is a first generation Palestinian Muslim American and was the first person with this background to serve FSU as the student senate president. Second, we have Dima Khalidi. Dima is the founder and director of Palestine Legal, our co-sponsor, and cooperating counsel with the Center for Constitutional Rights. She oversees Pal Legal's array of legal and advocacy work to protect people speaking out for Palestinian rights from attacks on their civil and constitutional rights. And last, we have Shireen Sa'ili, who is the associate professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Uh, Shireen researches Palestine and Palestinians and teaches the history of the modern Middle East, including Israel-Palestine. So we're gonna start with a round, which I call setting the scene. Uh, and Dima, I want to start with you. Um, many years ago, you observed that advocates for Palestinian rights, because of their advocacy for Palestinian rights, were being punished and or denied their rights and finding themselves disinvited from events or under surveillance or facing sanctions for exercising constitutionally protected free speech. And seeing this happening, as I understand it, you founded Palestine Legal. Uh, which is an organization that I'm quoting from your webpage, protects the civil and constitutional rights of people in the US who speak out for Palestinian freedom. So from your experience, from your vantage point of seeing the different tactics used over many years, can you situate the IRA definition for us? And looking at the cases that Palestine Legal works on, can you talk about how this effort to formalize a definition of anti-Semitism and place it into enforceable policy and law fits into that arc of um, pressure on, on Palestinian advocates and Palestinian voices. Thanks, Lara, and thanks, Efma, for, um, for hosting us all. Um, I think it uh, really is critical to, to talk about this issue from, from this per perspective, as that's, that's often lost in, in the conversations around this definition. Um, I think the first point is really that the, I, the IHRA definition is, is actually a culmination of a tactic that, that is not new by any means. I mean, if you look back at debates in the 60s and 70s around uh, Israel-Palestine, you see anti-Semitism accusations as a primary tool to discredit um, critics of Israel. So it's not new. And, you know, Pal Legal has only been around for about eight years. Um, but what we have seen in the last eight years is that the tactic of, of falsely accusing Palestine advocates of anti-Semitism is being used more and more as a tool of censorship. Um, and it's often, it, it, it's, it's really wielded against individuals. Um, consistently over half of the, the hundreds of incidents of repression that come to us um, involve fact false accusations of anti-Semitism. So, you know, as a smearing tactic, there's an incredible amount of time and effort that's being invested in attacking individuals, um, as Ahmed and as Shireen can attest. Uh, and, and, it's, it, and it's only for their speech, for, for speaking out publicly for Palestinian rights. Um, so, you know, we've seen a lot of reporting on this, um, revealing that there's a, a massive investment by Israel and by allied groups in the U.S. and you know, more so in the U.S. than, 
than in other places actually, but there's, there's a surveillance machine that actually physically and electronically surveils what people say, what they post, what they publish, and, and their activism for Palestinian rights. There are, as we know, websites that are dedicated to so-called exposing uh, critics of Israel and labeling them as anti-Semitic and pro-terrorist, of course, the kind of twin to, um, to, to anti-Semitism, right? Um, and, and also reporting that to their schools, to their employers, to the FBI, you know, getting, um, getting others to, to weigh in on the, the attack. Um, and, you know, I think it's important to, to note that these kinds of websites are not, you know, focused on exposing the white supremacists who are attacking temples and actually killing people and who wear you know, six million were not enough sweatshirts uh, in, in the Capitol riots. Um, these efforts are dedicated almost exclusively to surveilling advocates for, for, for Palestinian rights and their allies. And the reason for this is to scare people into silence, to make it too costly to speak out about this issue. Um, uh, at the same time that there's this McCarthyite operation to root out, you know, unzionist activities. And by the way, you know, Canary Mission, which is one of the websites, it also describes Palestine advocates as un-American, right? It's it's a it really is a, a parallel to um, kind of anti-communist McCarthyite the McCarthyite era. But these accusations have been turned into a legal weapon that is, is forcing institutions and government actors to censor and to punish this kind of uh, human rights advocacy. And that's where the IHRA comes in. So over a decade, you know, we've seen Israel advocacy groups using um, anti-discrimination laws, specifically Title VI of the Civil Rights Act um, to claim that Palestine advocacy on campuses is anti-Semitic and that universities have to protect uh, Jewish and pro-Israel students generally. Um, so we've seen you know, dozens of, of complaints submitted to the Department of Education, and these have largely been dismissed uh, because we have something called the First Amendment, which protects political speech. And you know, the, the Department of Education has recognized that this, these activities complained of are political speech that deserve First Amendment protection. But what the project to redefine and to politicize really the, the, def, the definition of anti-Semitism, which started years ago in the European context, what it's attempting to do is not only to conflate the boundaries between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, but also between political activity and discriminatory activity, right? This discrimination, it's trying to define um, Palestine advocacy as discriminatory. So this definition is kind of the missing link for these kinds of complaints, these kinds of uh, Title VI complaints, discrimination complaints. If you're able to define anti-Semitism to include criticism of Israel, then political activism can be censored and punished, right? So, so the, this codification, the codification of this definition is, is the missing link to, um, to defining this kind of, uh, and to punishing this, this, this kind of advocacy. 
So, you know, now this politicized definition has been turned into a legislative assault that is codifying it and uh, trying to get it to be applied to censor Palestine speech. And this is all over the world, but um, specifically in the US, it started on college campuses. Um, you know, there was a huge public campaign to get the UC regents to adopt it um, in, in 2015, 2016. And that actually failed for the most part. Um, and, and now we're seeing Israel and its allies here, Israel advocacy groups taking it to state legislatures with the help of right-wing groups, Christian Zionist groups, groups like ALEC, the, the American Legislative Exchange Commission, which is known for a who, you know, pushing a host of um, far-right legislation. Um, so it's turning into this new wave of of legislation that's attacking Palestine advocacy after you know, a, a huge wave of anti-boycott legislation that we saw that now 30 states have adopted in one way or another. Um, so, and, and finally, you know, during the Trump era, we saw Trump sign an executive order. Uh, and this is again, after Congress refused to pass similar legislation twice. Um, and uh, you know, it, it, the, the executive order basically requires federal agencies to consider this definition in investigating discrimination complaints. So, you know, what we've seen is that the, the use of anti-Semitism accusations to discredit people, and that has turned into, that has morphed into this legal tool to censor and punish people for, for speaking out. And so we can talk more about kind of how that's being used a little later. Great. Now that's a wonderful starting point. I also just uh, I want to add I, that it was pointed out to me recently that even where it's not legislated, it still has this impact. And I thought about this when I saw the recent report from the Israeli Ministry of Strategic Affairs, which is reaching out to social media. And, and obviously they are sensitive to the arguments about free speech. So what they're basically saying is that social media doesn't need to take, doesn't need to delete comments that are anti-Semitic. It just needs to label them. It needs to adopt the IRA definition, definition and then slap a warning label on anything that violates it so that effectively criticism of Israel ends up with a, an anti-Semitic warning label. So even going, not going the full step of legislating, it's, it's, it's of concern. Um, Shadina, I want to turn to you uh, to dig in a little bit deeper on the impacts and, and, and actually about the concerns specifically with IRA definition. So you, you signed a statement that I think we're going to throw into the box um, in November 2020 um, from Palestinian and Arab intellectuals that laid out in detail the problems that you see with the IRA definition of anti-Semitism. Can you talk about the issues raised in that letter and why, as a Palestinian, as a Palestinian American, as a Palestinian American academic, you see this definition as, as so problematic? Thank you so much, um, Laura, and also Sarah Ann, um, for bringing us together. It's an honor to be with you all, and I'm, you know, it's it's the work of foundations like yours that really help us feel like we're not alone. And I think. Um, you know, what Dima was talking about in terms of a politics of fear is a really important place to begin in thinking through how it affects scholarship. So from a really personal point of view, um, from my experience, you know, because I had a period of time 
in Cairo before I came to UCSB. I was I worked at um, the American University in Cairo for five years, and because I didn't feel there that I had uh, the pressure of being monitored and labeled and shut down, I was actually able to ask a different questions in my own work rather than constantly working to evidence my humanity as a Palestinian, I was actually able to critique some of the elite actors that I study. So I wanna pose this first and foremost also as a kind of politics of distraction that keep us busy, that don't allow us to do the more, the deeper, more important work that will help us envision liberation. Um, like most of our colleagues, Palestinian scholars are alarmed by the rising tides of anti-Blackness, xenophobia, anti-Semitism, racism, and Islamophobia in the United States and beyond. Um, and combating all forms of racism is really central to our intellectual and pedagogical work. Um, indeed, the structures, experiences, and legacies of anti-Semitism are key components of understanding the history and conflict of Israel-Palestine. So, you know, um, Edward Said long ago sort of invited us to think about anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and Orientalism as two sides of the same coin. And, and um, you know, we have been seeing that played out so critically. And I think the IHRA definition by deeming any critique of Zionism as anti-Semitic basically constructs a wall of silence um, that is anti-intellectual and flies in the face of basic principles of freedom of expression and assembly. Um, the IRA definition essentially deems any discussion of Palestinian rights, history or perspectives racist. <laughs> so the irony is, you are at once subject to racialized discourse and for expressing that discourse or critiquing it, you're deemed racist, right? Um, so this is even more egregious if you keep in mind the deeply racialized, excluded and unjust conditions, actually existing conditions of Palestinians around the world, whether they exist under Israeli occupation in the West Bank, Israeli siege in Gaza, any of the plethora of refugee regimes that Palestinians in the diaspora live under. So in this sense, what the IHRA does, um, what the IRA definition does is basically um, pose the Palestinian as a problem for simply existing without even naming us. And so the, the Guardian piece that you've linked to is a really well thought out piece that it, that covers, you know, um, that, that says really clearly, look, we are committed to the work on anti-racism, all forms of racism. Um, uh, Zionism and Judaism are not the same thing. And uh, foreclosing any critique of Israel does not render you racist. In fact, if you continue to sign on to and be complicit with the ongoing catastrophe or Nakba that Palestinians live under, that is in fact the racist uh, 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 structure that, that is imperative to fight against. 
an extremely powerful framing. I actually wrote down the term politics of distraction, which I think is worth just musing on the fact that we are doing a multi-part series talking about this as opposed to talking about what is the actual state of the problem of occupation, of human rights violations, of all of that. Um, it is enormously effective politics of distraction. It's also, I mean, the way you framed it, I remember when I first started paying attention years ago, looking at the IRA definition, and I thought to myself, if someone simply articulates their life experience as a Palestinian, under this definition, that can be called anti-Semitism. And, and the, the, the level of sort of zero-sum humanity, right? Like the only way I can have my humanity is if I deny yours, framing. Uh, for me as, as a Jewish American just struck me as so problematic. I mean, besides unjust and unconstructive, just that, that is this, that sort of framing, um, it's so dehumanizing um, and, and, and just, just so dangerous. Um, speaking of dehumanizing and dangerous, I want to shift to Ahmed. Um, Ahmed, you, uh, I'm familiar with you and your story because I follow this stuff in the news very, very closely and I'm, I feel really honored that you're with us and to get to hear your experience directly from you. Um, it, it, it's, it's humbling for someone my age to look at someone as young and see you and think what, what, you've, what you've been through and, and, and hear you talk about it. You are active in campus politics at Florida State University. We said that in the bio. And you also advocate for Palestinian rights as a Palestinian American, a Muslim American, Palestinian, all of that. Can you talk first, before we get into your personal story, can you just talk as a student, as a member of your generation, all of that. Can you talk about the pressures facing students on campus today who advocate for Palestinian rights, and especially when they are Palestinians advocating for Palestinian rights? Yeah, thank you. Um, so first thing, before I even respond to the question, I just wanted to acknowledge that, you know, I, I'm honored to be here, one, and two, the fact that I'm on here with such powerful women um, just proves to me the fact that women are superior. You know what I mean? You guys do the harder work. You're constantly so much stronger um, and push forward and fight when we, when men, some people like me, take a step back and just, you know, turn a blind eye and go do something else you're constantly still fighting. And so I just want to acknowledge that and thank you all for first you know, doing it and, and being here. Um, and when it comes to, to the question, thank you for asking it, Laura. You know, I just wanted to just talk about how the pressure is so immense. You know, At Florida State University, for example, someone like me, um, a Palestinian Muslim American who wants to advocate for my people, who wants to make sure that our stories are highlighted and wants to make sure that you know, Palestinian voices get an opportunity to be heard instead of constantly silenced, it's hard. Um, you know, just to a quick example from literally last week, I, I was at a Senate meeting. I'm a, I'm a duly elected senator. You know, I'm a student senator. I'm allowed to be at these meetings. It's my job to be there. And I'm sitting there and, you know, in public comment, there's, there's criteria for students who are allowed to speak. You're not allowed to attack character of any senator. Yet, while I'm on the call, I'm sitting there, a student who claims, proclaims themselves to be a Zionist Israeli student, that's how they introduce themselves. Um, and then they go off and decide to call me a hydra. Um, and they say that I have a head every time you cut one head off, multiple heads grow back. And then further goes on to say that I'm a beast that needs to be killed. And this happens, no one silences the individual. Um, and the, the worst part is that the vice president for student affairs, Dr. Hecht is on the call herself. She didn't say nothing. Nobody chose to stand up. And that's what sucks, being a Palestinian, in Florida, in one of the most red states, and at a campus like Florida State University, it's hard for us to even express who we are 
because of this fear that I'm going to be retaliated against. I'm going to be attacked. And so for someone like me, it's, it's just honestly, the, the easiest way to put it is hard, you know, but that doesn't stop us. And it doesn't stop me because I've seen so many ways that we could do better. You know, for a, another example, you know, Student for Justice in Palestine, we have a chapter on our campus and they, they wanted to go to the National Student for Justice in Palestine conference. This was in 20, um, I believe it was 2019. I was a student senator back then. And, you know, they requested funding through student government and they were allowed to get their funding. And as we're, you know, going through the, the process of just giving it the rubber stamp and giving them their funding, um, a student senator who's not Jewish, not Israeli, doesn't have any actual tie beyond the fact that I believe that they, they probably have ties to the Christian Zionism aspect, um, was wearing an Israeli pin and decided to stand up and say, we need to cut the SJP funding because of fiscal responsibility. Um, and I was like, you know, that, that doesn't make sense. Like, there's no need to lie. There's no need to say that this is why you're doing something. Tell us the truth. Tell us it's because you don't think Palestinians have a right to speak up. And, you know, the funniest part was I didn't even have to stand up and say that. Some of my white allies, they actually stood up and they told him point blank. They were like, we see what you're doing. Stop. And that motion to attempt and, you know, cut funding for Palestinian students didn't work. And that actually ended up with me going on my first NSJP conference ever and having one of the most amazing experience I could, could have asked for. You know, I got to learn so much more about how to be an advocate for Palestinians within the structures of the United States that it pushed me and propelled me forward to, you know, do what I'm doing now, which is I have, I had three pieces of legislation on, you know, the student senate calendar where I was one trying to repeal the IRA definition um, because at my university sadly it's been adopted and it's been causing harm to students on campus because of the fact that the examples equate any type of criticism me speaking on my lived experience living under occupation is now anti-semitic because of the IRA definition and so you know we I was going on I had that piece of legislation you know I also submitted a, a resolution in regards to boycott divestment sanctions, which is, you know, a peaceful, nonviolent political movement to attempt and give Palestinians an opportunity to be heard and stop the occupation. Um, and that was labeled as something that was as like terrorism, you know, literally the day after my resolutions fail, I resubmitted them because I'm not going to stop. Um, but the day after they failed, two right wingers um, on Twitter, they have over, I don't know, over 2 million followers, they like got the little check mark, they're verified. Personally, I'm not even on Twitter. Um, but these two right wingers, they go on to Twitter and because my legislation failed, they're like, oh, look at him. He's so un-American. Um, he's a terrorist da, da, da. and they're, they're just, you know, attacking me as an individual because I'm supporting my, my community, supporting my people. And that's the sad reality we live in on campuses is that no matter how, how much you want to be on the side of justice, how much you want to fight for your people, if you're Palestinian, then there's already a big X mark and it becomes this idea of, you know, the PEPs, progressive except Palestine, because so many people are going to support every other ism that when it comes to supporting Palestinians and the Palestinian struggle, now that's, that's too far. We can't go that far. Um, and so hopefully that answered the question, but to say the least, you know, being Palestinian on a campus in Florida is hard. And, and that's the easiest and most simple way to put it. It's hard, but it doesn't stop me and I hope it won't stop anybody else who's like me to continue the fight because we know that we're on the side of justice. We know that what we're fighting for is bigger than today and bigger than tomorrow. 
So that's that's deeply inspiring. And I do want to come back in a moment to your personal experience. I will say that what is clear, and we talked, you know, Shireen had the language that politics of distraction, um, it's not working, right? That must be enormously frustrating for the people who are who are leading this battle. Um, from my experience, watching Palestinian activism over the past you know, tw two decades, um, it seems that the harder people push, the stronger people are in, in knowing who they are and what they're fighting for. It's quite in, it's actually quite inspiring. Um, Shireen, I, I want to come back to you for a moment. We, so we've been talking about the IRA definition a lot, in, obviously, for weeks. You've been studying and teaching modern Middle Eastern history in American universities for, for a long time, including teaching the history of Israel and Palestine. So in December 2019, Nima mentioned this, uh, Trump adopted the executive order on anti-Semitism, which codified the IRA definition and made it enforceable on campuses that receive public funding, or at least it made it open for people to try to enforce it or use it as a tool of enforcement. Can you talk about what that has meant for you as an academic on campus, um, and especially what it's meant in the undergraduate classroom? And I guess I'd ask you to also talk about, I mean, this goes along with, you know, the various movements online for people reporting their professors, right, and reporting curriculum and all of that, how it feeds that, that overarching pressure on professors and what they say and what they teach. Um, yes. Uh, so I'll just say sort of first anec anecdotally, you know, it'll mean something like um, coming out of a big survey class, which at UCSB is like 250 people and, you know, having the adrenaline of just giving a lecture and looking at your phone and finding 50 Twitter messages because some bot linked to Canary Mission is slandering you and how you look and that you are, uh, you know, in real animalistic terms. So again, I, I really want people to have a sense of how corporal this is, how, how like physically invasive it is of your mind and space and body, right? What it means to be subject to that kind of racialized rhetoric, right? That is, um, that's so debilitating. Um, Ira in the classroom and the executive order in particular, and you know, I know we're gonna um, talk a little bit more about that um, later, but basically it's meant that you, if you're, you know, and I've been teaching for over a decade now, and it basically it means that when you step into the classroom, you're stepping into a courtroom where you're already guilty. You're guilty because you exist. You're guilty because you have this perspective when, you know, and what it meant for me um, uh, just before the pandemic um, was that I started actually talking to, I mean, I reached out to Dima. I talked to everybody in my department. Um, I, tr I talked to my deans just to say, what are my legal implications here? You know, what, how can this definition be weaponized? Um, what should I do? You know, um, how should I relate? I can't record because that's not ethical. Um, you, what are the different mechanisms I had? So I just want people to imagine what that might mean. If you're teaching a class, you've worked all your life to have a position where you can articulate a history of this place 
And before you even speak or step into the classroom, you have to have a contingency plan because you know that eventually you're going to be slandered, targeted, and attacked, right? And so, I mean, I, I, I want to just say a couple of more things but, um, before I hand it over about my general approach to teaching um, Israel-Palestine. And then I want to conclude with, again, what the IRA definition doesn't allow us to think about, what it distracts us from asking um, a very specific question. I've been teaching this history, like I said, for over a decade. My guiding principle, and I have two guiding principles. One is that I insist that all of us must reject all forms of racism in any of its forms, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, Orientalism, anti-Blackness. And so the work on teaching the history of anti-Semitism is crucial as part of this course, right? Um, and second, I insist on radical empathy. And, and what I mean by that is that I really try to center um, both the history of the genocide of the Jewish people in Europe or the Shoah and the history of the dispossession of the Palestinians in 1948, the Nakba, as, and its ongoing character. I think this is something that people really need to keep in mind. The Nakba did not end in 1948. It continues every day, okay? Through dispossession, through uprooting, through making impossible having a livable life if you are a Palestinian living on the land of the West Bank and Gaza or even inside the Green Line. I try to su suggest to my students and the way that I try to teach the class is to think about how is it that the Shoah and the Nakba, they're often, um, they're often posed as oppositional. And I try to invite us not to think of them as oppositional and, and rather to think of them together which is not to say that they're in any way similar or comparable because that would be shallow and historical, but rather to say that they show us the significance and the centrality of catastrophe to both the Jewish and Palestinian histories, right? Um, and here I want to distinguish between Jewish and Israeli, not the same thing, not the same thing. Right. This is what I think the Zionist project has been very successful at doing, making synonymous categories that are distinct, Jewish and Zionist, Jewish and Israeli. They are not the same. Right. We have to break down those 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 categories. Um, so basically, Ira has worked as a as a way to suppress, suppress any critique of Israel in the classroom. And it weaponizes false accusations of anti-Semitism to suppress, again, any speech in support of Palestinian rights, history, or self-determination. Um, for somebody like me, you know, I have tenure. It's, it's, I'm more privileged. But imagine if you were an assistant professor, that is somebody who was just starting out, what would it feel like? You would be constantly afraid of speaking in the classroom, right? So I'll end by saying that one of the problems with the IRA definition, its weaponization, is that again, we should actually be talking right now about what does it mean that a state that is self-defining as a Jewish state continues to 
uh, uh, occupy and deny Palestinians basic inalienable rights. That is the pressing question of the day. This is the question that we have to answer. And I will say also that in fact, the reason that these, um, that these definitions have become so powerful isn't because we're weak, it's because we're strong. It's because Palestinians, Jewish Americans of all stripes and people of color have come around and found common cause in opposing the ongoing denial of basic inalienable rights for Palestinians. And that's why this is scary because there is a moral battle um, that is not based on identity. Thank you, um, that is, that's very um, powerful. I, I found myself thinking also while you were talking that you know, maybe one of the unintended consequences of this effort to, to quash all discussion of those important questions, right? What are actually happening in some ways, the battle to quash it has actually maybe put more of a spotlight on the violations of rights and on the inequalities and inequities. I mean, that's, you know, that, that's maybe the gamble that the people trying to quash free speech have taken, you know, in the act of quashing it, they're putting more of a light on it. Maybe that's good. Um, trying to find the, the positive here, but I actually think that's true. Uh, Dima, I wanna come back to you and ask you really a similar question, but sort of you know, zooming out, not just on academia, to talk about you know, more specifically the way that the IRA definition is being used to silence and intimidate advocates for Palestinian freedom and critics of Israel and, and the implications of this. And here I'm also thinking of whether it's social media or, I mean, social media is, is the focus that I've had very much of late, as you know. Um, but what we're seeing with hate crimes legislation, efforts to, to, to add this to hate crimes legislation. And I also wanted you to, to look at, I, I don't know if you're comfortable answering this, but the difference between how it impacts Palestinians versus non-Palestinian activists. You know, people like me, who has the, the privilege of being Jewish when I talk about this, so I can still be called an anti-Semite, but it isn't, it isn't quite as sharp a knife. So if you feel like addressing that, you can. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, we, we really have seen IHRA um, it deployed mainly on college campuses. And so I wanna, I, I do wanna focus us on a few examples of, of how uh, it's being used. Um, and, and I think that really it illuminates for us what the intent of this definition really is. And, and again, that's to be able to call Palestinians and people who support Palestinian uh, rights anti-Semitic and thereby, uh, uh, you know, stain them, delegitimize them, whatever, however you want to say it. Um, so, I mean, just a, just a couple of examples that I think help show the absurdity as well of, of the definition and how it's being used. Um, you know, it, it, it's so clearly targeting um, it, the advocacy that is trying to raise awareness about who Palestinians are, you know, what's going on, the, the, the broader struggle. And, and a couple of years ago in 2018, um, the Berkeley students uh, were, were trying to hold a vigil 
that was mourning both Palestinian children killed by an Israeli bombing attack in Gaza, as well as victims of the Pittsburgh massacre by white supremacists, right? And, and there were complaints before it even happened. And it claimed, the, claim, the claim was that calling out Israel's uh, violence was implying a blood libel. Um, and they pointed to the IHRA definition. Um, so, you know, does this mean that you can't criticize any of Israel's well-documented international law violations, human rights violations, um, the, the, you know, uh, the, the attacks on Gaza that have killed hundreds of, of people, women and children, um, it, it's torture program, it's abuse of children, I mean, you, the list goes on and on, right, and, and um, it, you know, the, the, it, it's very clear that, that the target is really the truth, right? The, the speaking about things that are happening in reality. Um, another example is at uh, Butler University in Indiana, there was huge opposition to a poster exhibit that students put on about boycotts um, historically and contemporarily, and, and it included a, a poster of a boycott for Palestinian rights. and. In reaction to this exhibit, there was a huge harassment campaign against students. Far right, you know, social media influencers were, you know, calling on on the university to to, to uh, take it down, to censor it. Um, and uh, opponents also introduced a resolution to adopt the IHRA definition in student government. And ultimately, this failed because the student government saw that the resolution and the definition itself was, was actually aimed at silencing Palestinians uh, and was targeting political speech. Um, another, another example is an, at another Indiana university, a Palestinian human rights lawyer was uh, you know, giving a lecture about Palestinian human rights. And you know, Israel groups in Indiana tried to censor the talk and warned that if he advocates for boycotts or if he demonizes or delegitimizes Israel, which is all part of the definition, um, it, you know, it, 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 it's anti-Semitic and, uh, you know, that they tried to justify the censorship of this talk. Again, it didn't work, but I think as Shireen is saying, like imagine the energy that goes into uh, defending, you know, the just the right to be able to to give a lecture about Palestinian human rights um, on a college campus, right? Where this is where we're supposed to 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 do these things. So there are so many examples like this, and I think Ahmed's experience is another one that you know I think he he can tell you about. Um, but you know, when when we do drill in and and think about the way that this thing is actually being deployed, the, the, the uh, way, the, the instances of political activism that it is trying to disrupt, we see that what it's actually targeting is any resistance to the concept of Zionism and to Israel, um, as well as the very notion of Palestinian identity as, as you all have been alluding to, right? And, the examples that are embedded in this definition they include right denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination by claiming Israel is a racist endeavor, for example. Um, so, so you see that this labels any questioning of Israel's foundation as a state for Jewish people in historic Palestine and at the expense of Palestinians as anti-Semitic. 
and, and that's how it, it negates Palestinians and, and their own connection to their land, not to mention their own right to self-determination, right? So, so this, ex this example in the definition and, and others, in effect, deny that Palestinians have any rights at all um, by denying that there's anything wrong with the state of Israel or how it was formed or how it continues to dispossess Palestinians and violate their rights. Um, and it also discredits us Palestinians and how we talk about our experiences of colonization and subjugation and dispossession. Um, it, it discredits our resistance to it. Um, and, and this is where it, it really, it, I, I feel like it's, it's so nefarious. It, it implies that our resistance to, uh, to Israel and to our own occupation isn't motivated by a desire for freedom or justice. It's actually motivated by some illogical primal hatred of Jewish people, right? Uh, which is in itself a, a racist, anti-Arab, anti-Muslim trope as, as uh, Shireen was, was pointing out, you know? Uh, so so this, is, this is what lies at the heart of the IHRA. It's a negation of Palestinian, uh, Palestinian hood, Palestinian narratives, uh, the Palestinian struggle uh, as a whole. Um, and just to your, to your question about the difference for Palestinians versus non-Palestinians and the impact, I, I think it's really that it tries to take away Palestinian agency and existence for Palestinians who, who are attacked in this way. And, and for allies, on the other hand, it's a warning, right? It's a, uh, a warning that if you stand with them, with us, with Palestinians, then you'll be tarnished too, and, and you'll be uh, erased and discredited as well. And for Jewish allies, you'll be excommunicated from this redefined community that no longer tolerates dissent on this one topic, right, on, on Israel. Um, so, so it is also redefining, I think, who is Jewish, right? Uh, based on this litmus test of, um, you know, whether you you uh, criticize or uh, oppose uh, Israel or, or Zionism or what have you. Yeah, and that you said something there. I haven't heard it framed that way before. I mean, the the idea that this, this absolute that the framing of the IRA definition denying Palestinians basically the right to be Palestinian. The, the other piece of it, which is striking for me when you think of Palestinian allies, whether they're Arab or not, or Jewish or anything else, is you know, if the idea in the IRA definition is that Palestinians advocating for their rights are doing so not because they care about rights, but because they hate Jews, the framing that says, if you're an advocate for Palestinian rights, that can only be, mean, be out of animus towards Jews. It can't be because you care about rights. The idea that either, you know, it's okay to be an advocate for Israel and, and laser focused on Israel, but if you are advocating for Palestinians, laser focused on Palestinians, it means you're an anti-Semite, right? You have, you have to advocate for everybody's rights or nobody's rights. Um, and it's, it's, it's incredibly insidious and cynical. Um, okay, Ahmed, I want to come back to you. I want you to take some time talking to us about your personal experience. And I feel, I feel awkward asking you this because this is a very personal experience, um, but it, you've talked about it, you've written about it. As the first Palestinian Muslim student Senate president at FSU, you were attacked 
in a very public and, and, and nasty campaign that turned into what looked to me like a political witch hunt. Um, and you were attacked as anti-Semitic. And this attack was based on social media posts you made when you were a child and when you were a child living under occupation in the West Bank. So I want you to talk about that whole experience, however you want to. But what I, I think, you know, folks attending this webinar would be interested in is, you know, what were you experiencing and thinking when you made those posts? I mean, I think that sort of understanding that where they came from, um, but also how were they then used against you? Why were you targeted? Who was behind it? Um, and, and what was the outcome of, of that experience for you? Yeah, thank you so much for, for asking that. Um, I, I honestly think this will probably be one of the first opportunities I get to express how this has you know, impacted me and my view on this. Um, because in so many ways, it's been misconstrued. So many people you know, run, run with the story and say, oh, look at him, he's anti-Semitic, look at him, look at that. Um, and they forget that I'm a person too. They forget that I, that I lived through oppression. You know, I lived in the West Bank in Palestine um, from 2009 until 2014, where I came to the States um, and, you know, started my career in America and Tallahassee, you know, I started as a, a high school student um, in 2014. But, you know, I do want to, I just want to talk about a brief story from, you know, the time that I was in Palestine. So throughout my six years, 2009 to 2014, um, I experienced a lot of different things, to say the least. You know, the occupation is not something that's easy. Um, Shireen mentioned it is the fact that the Nekba is ongoing. It's happening today. You know, if you look at the right now, you know, you can see the medical apartheid happening in Palestine. And so it's there's so many different layers to discuss. But for me, this is um, I'm just going to read it because it's really hard to just articulate it. Um, but I, I wrote this essay when I was a freshman in at FSU um, for one of my history classes. They asked us to write down um, kind of our, our lived experiences and just elaborate on them and, and, and such. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go into it, I'm gonna read it. Um, and this is just one of the experiences just to set the stage um, in the context. This, the story I'm about to read took place in 2014. It was the summer before I came to America. Um, it was the summer I did come to America actually, but it happened in, um, I believe the time, it was either June or July, but it was the time that the Gaza Strip was being bombed. There was a lot of just disarray in the, in the West Bank as well as the Gaza Strip. Um, so just to go into it, you know, the year was 2014, um, and I had recently turned 14 and was now on the verge of coming back to America. You know, we were leaving the Bita where I had lived in a, in a very nice home that I loved and created fond memories in. The only issue was that we lived across from a settlement that was a very hostile protesting ground. On a calm summer night, my sisters and I were watching TV, and my mom was in the kitchen making dinner. And it seemed like an average night until we started to see smoke from the living room window. So we went outside and realized that there were some kids that had begun to burn some tires to get the IDF's attention. And, you know, I was unnerved by the number of protesters because they just seemed to double, to triple, and then even quadruple in size. And the IDF stayed silent. All was moving, yet all was still. The tensions were so high, you could feel the tremble in your bones. The protesters kept taunting the IDF by launching rocks, making more fires, and chanting in Arabi, uh, Palestine will be free. All of those little things started to add up, and then the IDF engaged. Bullets were sent flying through the air, along with tear gas smothering everyone and everything in range. My family and I stayed huddled around our television set, watching the live news broadcast. Our nightmare swirled around us so tightly 
because it was our harsh reality. People who were basically kids, no older than I was, were collapsing from bullets and others were collapsing from the strength of the tear gas. It was the middle of the night and nothing had gotten better when all of a sudden we hear our window shatter and we were engulfed with gas. I couldn't breathe. We had to all go to the furthest corner of the house so that we could just be able to attempt to breathe because the gas would climb into your throat and steal your breath away. And the gas would touch your eyes, rendering it hard to see or make out things around you. And that gas would strip away your senses faster than you could ever get away. And that night, it taught me that no one was safe, even in their own home. And that I needed to make it a goal to be the best me I could be once I was in the United States of America. Um, and so just, just ex reliving that experience right now is, is tough because it comes with so much trauma, with, with so much pain, because being a Palestinian is about seeing so many things like this and worse. And just to, you know, go into my experience, this is what led me, experiences like these is what led me to the person I am today, to be someone who is fierce, to be someone who is, you know, emboldened, to be someone who is unafraid. Because when I decide to cower into those feelings, into, you know, being embarrassed, into being not wanting to speak up and not wanting to show my identity and show who I am, then I'm allowing the people who oppress me to win. And so, you know, to go into my experience more, I came to America in 2014, shortly after that had taken place. And, you know, we live in Tallahassee. I go to high school here four years. And those four years of high school were honestly pretty good. You know, I didn't have any issues in regards to my identity. You know, there was a little, a couple incidents here and there when I'm asked if I'm a part of ISIS, if I'm a terrorist. But these are, these are things that to me are normal. You know, these are things that I'm desensitized to because like, I personally like, yes, it's serious, but at the same time, you know, it's ignorance. They're asking these questions because they don't know who I am. They don't understand what it's like to be a Palestinian, what it's like to be Muslim. And so, you know, to go to, to my time at Florida State, you know, it's, it's been tough since my first semester there. You know, my first semester as a, as a college student, um, it was nice as a care student because, you know, you have so many people of color around you and you get to experience culture and, and you get to feel safe to some extent. But my first fall semester was my first instance where after class, some girl walks up to me and tells me, uh, you know, I'm speaking to my mom, I'm speaking to my mom on the phone in Arabic and some girl walks up to me and tells me, you know, um, go back to your country. You can't speak that here, da, da, da. And I'm like, are you joking? You know, and this is the first sense that I'm getting that FSU is not necessarily a welcoming place for Arabs. It's not necessarily a welcoming place for a Palestinian, someone like me. Um, but, you know, I, I choose to ignore it and I choose to push forward and to get involved with my student government. And so that's what I did. You know, as a, as a freshman, I became a legislative aide in the student Senate. Um, and then by the spring semester of my freshman year, I was elected as a senator. Um, and ever since I have been a senator. And so throughout that time of, of being a senator, I was able to understand how it works to advocate for students. Um, and I advocated for a multitude of issues. I never truly advocated for Palestinians in the Senate. Um, at the beginning of my tenure because I didn't feel like it was necessarily the best place to do it just because of the fact that I wanted to, you know, feel like I could fit in, feel like I could just be a normal student and get my degree and just support, you know, everybody who needs support, not necessarily focus on my own identity. And so that's what I did. Um, and by doing that, I was able to gain so much support and so many people to see that, wow, he's a powerful speaker. He's someone who cares about the students. 
Um, and so then that's why this summer of um, this past summer, the summer of 2020, I was elected in June, uh, on June 5th, to be the student senate president after a previous president was removed um, for racist and, and transphobic comments that he had made. And so for me, I was, I was just elated. I was like, wow, I finally get to be in a position that nobody who looks like me has ever been in. I get to be a voice for Palestinians, for Muslims, for Arabs, for everybody you know, black students, train, like I, I personally didn't care about the fact that, you know, that I was, you know, representing my community. I did care, but at the same time, I didn't care because I was so happy that I get to voice the opinion of all these marginalized communities that get put on the back burner and forgotten about so many, like every, every time I see a Senate president, they constantly just, you know, do the basic things. They like, you know, just go through the, 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 the like the, the, I can't think of the word, but the, the basic things that they have to do, you know what I mean? They're not going out of their way to advocate for students. And for me, that was one of the things that I wanted to do was go out of my way to make sure students felt hurt. Um, but that wasn't something that I was able to do to the extent that I wanted to, because three days after I'm elected, you know, someone's commenting on my Instagram saying, oh, how can you support students? Um, and uh, under a post where I said F Israel and F the occupation, clearly directed to the government, not directed to an individual person. Um, but you know, this individual took it as they pleased and they screenshotted it, posted it on Facebook and made it this, this thing that, oh my God, look at him, he's so anti-Semitic. He can't support Jewish students because he doesn't believe the government of Israel should exist, right? And so for me, it's like, how is that anti-Semitic? How am I being anti-Semitic when all I'm doing is one, you know, advocating for my for my people. And two, the, the the story behind the post was I had literally been at the border for six plus hours waiting to get into the West Bank to see my family for this one week that I went to visit in 2019. And while I was at the, you know, at the at the border crossing, you know, the Israeli soldiers, they grab my father and they take over $8,000 from him because, you know, when you're Palestinian, you can't have over $2,000 in cash with you because, you know, who knows what you're going to do with it. That, that's the, the idea that they have when in reality, my father brought that money to pay off debts, um, but they took it. And then they ended up taking, I think, a tax of over $3,000. And so he only gets back five. And so for me, I was frustrated. And so I make a post like that releasing some frustration with the statue of Nelson Mandela. It's not like I'm standing on someone's head or I'm pointing a gun or doing something, you know, outrageous, right? I'm just standing and trying to be empowered with my identity. And all of a sudden, now I'm, I'm a horrible person because I decided to speak up for myself and speak up for my family. And to go even further, you know, these, these other things that started to come up throughout the, the few weeks while people were attempting to remove me from my presidency, um, you know, I was, I was labeled as anti-Semitic as well for a post that I made when I was 12 years old. Um, it was a, a photo of an IDF soldier. And, you know, I was 12, so I can't tell you if it's fact or fiction. I, I was seen worse than that in person. And so for me, I believed that that was something that could happen, where it was an IDF soldier with his foot on a child's chest and a gun to the little child's face. And so me, distraught, 12-year-old Ahmad is like, oh, my God, what the heck is going on? And I'm like this, and to me, you know, Jew, Zionist, and Israeli were all the same word at the time. There was no differentiation when you're a 12 year old living under occupation, you don't understand the difference. And so out of anger and out of just sadness and madness for what I had seen and the things I had seen in person, I say, 
stupid Jew thinks he's cool, referring to that one individual who's a soldier with their foot on a child's chest. And then because of that, now I'm anti-Semitic and now I'm saying that all Jews are stupid when I never said that. And you know, I make a history fair project when I was in high school, I was 15 years old. I do a history fair project about the reality of Palestinians and comparing it to the Holocaust because you know, at that time I had no idea that Jewish students or Jewish people would take offense to you know, using historical context of an atrocity, comparing it to another atrocity that's happening. To me, I thought that was normal and I thought that was okay. Yet, because I did it and because you're comparing Palestinians and the Palestinian struggle to the Jewish people and the Jewish struggle, now I'm anti-Semitic again. So time and time again, just trying to be a Palestinian, just trying to be someone who stands up for their own rights and their beliefs, I became anti-Semitic. And the truth is, I'm not, you know what I mean? Any reasonable person who, one, tries to get to know me as a person, and two, looks beyond the surface, will understand that I'm merely a hurt Palestinian trying to speak up, trying to not allow our voices to continue to be erased, trying to ensure that we have a platform, we have an ability to speak up, because so many times it's like the carpet is taken right from under our feet. And so to, to go even further, you know, um, the question you asked about who, who targeted me, um, who was behind it and what was the outcome? So I was targeted to say the least by the, the entire government of Florida. Um, literally the emergency manager, Jared Muskowitz for the state of Florida, who's supposed to, in my, in my personal belief should have been involved with trying to ensure people are safe from COVID-19, making sure human beings are okay, decided to threaten the university and tell them, you know, of course, this is something that he denies. Um, but I had gotten a call from someone who worked at the university that told me anonymously was like, hey, Jerry Muskowitz called my boss and told him, if you don't handle Ahmad, you will not receive your funding. And the funding was over a million or $2 million to help the university battle COVID-19. And so the fact that money is being withheld because I spoke up on my beliefs, what does that say? What does that tell you about the reality of these government officials? They care more about shielding Israel than people's lives. People are dying from COVID-19 and this is what he cares about. Beyond that, there was literally two cities in South Florida, uh, I believe Hallandale Beach and Aventura. And they both decided like, you know, they wanna be so proactive. They're like, oh my God, we need to get this this bad, horrible kid. Like he's he's a, he's horrifying and scaring Jewish students at FSU, and like because I watched their little commission meetings, and that's how they describe me as someone who's causing harm and trying to intimidate and scare people. And I never did any of those things, but that's how they viewed me, um, because automatically when you're a Palestinian and when you're a man and when you're somebody who speaks up for what you believe in and you stand your ground, now you're scary. Now I'm this aggressive bad person. Um, and so those two cities decide to write resolutions against me, like their commissions literally draft resolutions that say that the Senate president at FSU needs to be removed. Um, you know, they weren't bold enough to directly put my name in the resolutions. Um, I'm not sure if that was a legal issue on their side or what it may be, but they, they chose to attempt and come after me that way. Um, even beyond that, you know, the Jewish state legislature, uh, there's like the Jewish caucus at the Florida State House, and they wrote a letter basically saying how 
I'm unethical, how I'm this, that, and the third and attacking my character. And for me, it's just, it's just astonishing that a 20 year old who literally has been in a position for less than a month is so big of a threat just because I'm Palestinian and because I have strong views on how we need to support our people just because of that. Now I need to be destroyed and my future needs to be ended, yada, yada, yada. And it's just so, it's just so sad to see that these people waste their time and their energy on this. Cause for me, it's like, I'm, I'm living in their minds rent free. Like what's next? What else are they going to do? You know, like I, I'm not afraid of these tactics that they have. I'm not afraid of these, you know, insults and these attacks because at the end of the day, I know what I stand for. I know who I'm here to support. And the people who support me and know who I am, they know who I stand for. And they know that I'm not here to be a bad person. I'm not here to cause harm because, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's just powerful to see that, you know, it's people of color who are going to stand by you mostly because they understand the struggle of oppression. Um, and there's, there's this quote that I really, I'm trying to find it from MLK, it, not MLK, Malcolm X, um, where uh, I can't, I, I, I'm trying to think of it like directly because I can't, I don't have it memorized, but basically um, it's, it's like along the lines of, I stand for truth uh, no matter who, who says it. Um, and then it's, it's something along those lines of you're standing for truth no matter who says it and no matter who's against it. Um, because for me, being on the side of the truth, being on the side of justice matters more than who's opposing me and who's trying to silence me and make me feel as if my voice doesn't matter. Because at the end of the day, you know, I know who I am, like I said, and the people who truly understand why I'm fighting and why I won't stop fighting, those people, they're the ones that give me the strength that I need to push forward. Um, and so at the end of it, you know, the outcome when it comes to, to my situation, uh, you know, I was never removed from my position because of these comments. I was never removed by senators. Um, I was actually ended up being removed, I think, two weeks before my term ended because of, you know, Jack Denton, the president who was removed before me. Um, he filed, a, you know, a complaint with the student Supreme Court and the student Supreme Court, they already disliked me for a multitude of reasons. Um, but, you know, they decided to, to go in favor of Jack and they, you know, made a ruling that Jack is the rightful president. He shouldn't have ever been removed. And so they just, you know, reinstate him and removed me. But, you know, at the end of the day, that, that just shows me how I was so right in the, in the mindset that I had. And I was so right in standing up for my beliefs and standing up for my people that I wasn't even removed for standing up for them. I was removed for actions that I didn't even take. You know, and so the experience overall has been has been a lot. But you know, I've enjoyed the ride, and I'm just happy to be here. Wow, um, that's uh, I'm so grateful for you telling your story, um, and you tell it in a very compelling way. I'm so grateful for you being here. Um, it's a lot. I, I want to I want everyone to digest that, and I want to encourage them. I, I know that my colleagues put into the chat box um, links to some work on Palestine Legal's website about Ahmed's case. I think it's it's worth reading to understand what it's try to try to imagine the experience of being a student being attacked by state officials. I mean, it, it that that sort of escalation. And Dima, I, I actually want to come to you and ask you to talk a little bit about Palestine Legal's work with Ahmed. 
um, but also more broadly, this um, what, what we I think of sort of the 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 chilling effects that are implemented when you can actually have universities threatened this way, um, whether or not it would hold up in court, whether there's a Title VI complaint or not, that's that's legitimate. When administrators can say you will lose funding if you don't cave in on this or when a lawfare organization can write a letter saying, you know, you could, you know, end up, you know, with complaints against you. So talk about how that chilling effect works um, on, on campuses. Yeah. And thanks, Ahmed, for, um, for give, I mean, I think when you, when you talk about what happened, like we've been, we've been working to support Ahmed for, for months, you know, and and the kind of it's just relentless the barrage of of attacks on on him individually, um, and and you know you were saying <laughs> you were saying before you know thank, thanking us for keeping going, but you know it's it's you and your persistence that has been so um, such an inspiration. I think um, you know to to see that you have refused to, to kind of cave in and have continued to speak up for, for yourself and for, for your fellow students. Um, you know, I, I think to be honest, the, the deployment of IHRA specifically hasn't made that much difference on the ground for, for the people who are being attacked because they were attacked before IHRA and they will be attacked after it. And I do hope there is an after it when we kind of come to, to you know, to a conclusion that this is a, 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 a an ill-advised uh, path to take. Um, but what changes is really that, you know, from the top down, this definition is gaining legitimacy and the more entrenched that it gets, uh, the more it's relied on to justify censorship. Um, and, and so, you know, when it's adopted by state legislator, uh, state legislatures and by university administrators and by municipalities, um, it, it, it actually enlists these institutions and these government officials as censors on behalf of Israel, actually, and, and its allies. Um, it tells them that if you don't scrutinize, if you if you don't stop and you don't punish these critic critic criti critics and these criticisms of Israel or of Zionism, um, these expressions of Palestinian experience, then then you're discriminating against Jewish people and you're enabling anti-Semitism as well, right? So so it's it's really getting the state and state officials and institutions to, uh, to engage in the censorship. Um, and you know, in, in many cases that may mean violating the first amendment. Um, and, and, and so that's where we could see potential challenges to, to the, the deployment of this, of this definition. Um, you know, when, when we see I think Ahmed's case is such a clear example of when university administrators are um, immediately condemning and, uh, you know, I think that the president at, at FSU um, immediately said, oh, we condemn this anti-Semitic, first he said this anti-Israel speech, and then he said this anti-Semitic speech, they actually changed it, right, to say, um, no, it's anti-Semitic. 
Um, and, and, you know, so, so we see this happening a lot and, and university administrators are really quick to condemn, to, you know, start investigations against students, against professors, um, and, and scrutinize every event that an SJP puts on, every lecture, every, uh, every incident um, that's complained about. Um, so that's real. It has a big effect on people's advocacy, um, the way Shireen described, you know, going into a classroom and, you know, having to assume that your, your every word is going to be scrutinized, uh, recorded, uh, condemned. Um, and, and, you know, again, as Shireen said, it's a distraction. It's politics of distraction. You have to redirect your energy to defending yourself and what you're saying against these accusations. And, and that takes a real toll. Um, and, and, and let's be clear, you know, this is the intent. This is the exact intent of, uh, uh, of employing this definition. It's, it's to distract us, to put us on the defensive. Um, and I don't know if you all saw, but that, that lobby documentary that Al Jazeera leaked, um, that was leaked because Al Jazeera wouldn't publish it, wouldn't put it out. Um, but, you know, you have these, um, these adv Israel advocacy groups saying very clearly, you know, that's what we want. We want them to be distracted or to be so, you know, so scared that they won't, they just shut up, right? Um, so, so it's not just me saying that this is the intent. It, the, you know, folks behind Canary Mission and all of these uh, tactics have said it themselves. This is the intent. Um, but, you know, at the same time, there's pushback. And, and I think that's really important to emphasize here. Um, people realize that this is a political project that's aimed at political repression. Um, I, I, I'm sure some folks have heard about the uh, University of College London. Uh, there was a retraction of the IHRA, uh, the adoption of, of the IHRA there. Um, you know, and a, recommenda a recommendation, they haven't, they haven't retracted it yet. Right, a recommendation to retract IHRA from the academic senate, I think. Um, uh, you know, so, so when, we, when we engage, when we reveal uh, what is behind this and what it means and what its impact is, it's, it's often effective, not always. Um, but to be honest, we're, we're playing whack-a-mole. Right, I just, you know, in the last few months in Illinois, we have a, a legislative uh, bill that's been introduced uh, trying to adopt the anti uh, IHRA. We have in the Human Rights Commission, it's, it's come up um, in the city council, in Chicago City Council, it's come up, right? So there's clearly a um, widespread effort to try to get anybody and everybody to adopt this definition. Um, and so, I think it's a real question, you know, where do we put our energies? Um, where do we, uh, you know, do we have to battle this everywhere it comes up to explain, you know, uh, our own existence? Um, and as you said, Lara, it's also, uh, we can also see it as an opportunity, as an opportunity to uh, reveal these things, to talk about these things, to, to talk about what Zionism is to a Palestinian. Um, what what Israel is to a Palestinian, um, so that you know that I think there are a lot of questions coming up around how we uh, how we engage on this and how much energy we put into this, um, 
you know, the chilling effect is real. It's hard to quantify. Um, many don't want to speak out. Uh, they don't want to put their names out there. They know that it means being potentially attacked. Um, but, you know, there's also defiance and there's resilience and there are activists who are rallying, who are, you know, standing up for each other and who are keeping up the work to, to educate people about uh, the Palestinian struggle. And, and I think that's where we have to keep our focus is, um, is, is on the real issue, as we've been saying, you know, um, what is really going on. And, and, and that's ultimately how I think we can, uh, we can challenge this. It's, it's by showing, you know, what, um, what Israel uh, is doing and what Palestinians are doing and, and how we're, we're resisting, uh, you know, and, and, and fighting for, for our own existence ultimately. So, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's also a lot of organizing happening in the, the Jewish community and more and more progressive Jewish organizations are starting to speak out about IHRA as I'm sure you talked about last, um, last event. So, uh, you know, it, it, I think it's, we're, we're at a turning point, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm being too optimistic, but I think that there's, um, there's, there's a lot happening that is undermining the, the entire basis of this definition and, and exposing how it's been used and, and the impact it's having on people and, and the way it, it actually erodes all of our First Amendment rights, right? It's not just about us here talking about Palestine. Once you start, you know, putting out these definitions, um, it, defining what is acceptable discourse and what is not, you know, that that has implications for all of us and, and our ability to, to talk about anything. Thank you. And I, I actually, I agree with you. I think there's the, the, the folk, I, I think there's, I think you can't ignore the pushback and how effective it has been. Um, and I don't know, my colleagues can maybe put into the chat box. I have a database I've been maintaining of the statements and the articles pushing back against the IRA definition. And if you look at the tenor of a lot of the, the noise around the definition now, promoting it, it's effectively now trying to make the argument that even questioning the definition of itself is a form of anti-Semitism. There's a very defensive tone now um, in, in where this is going. Which I think you know illustrates the the arguments in its favor are not are not so strong. Um, Shireen, I want to come back to you. We're, we're sort of getting towards the end here, um, and I want to sort of bring in some things that both Ahmed and Dima have said before, and you as well, on the questions of of struggle, right? The the broader questions of struggle, um, and you know the the term which I learned you know five years ago and now is everywhere. The you know the intersection, the intersectionality. So whether it's the executive order or the pressure on the definition on campus or more broadly, how do these intersect in your mind as, as an academic, as an observer of trends in politics, how do these intersect with the other political dynamics in American culture today? And in particular, the struggles for social justice and liberation, um, equity, um, and, and the efforts to block them, right? There's, there's, it's, it's not for nothing that the same people who are pushing back so strongly against, you know, criticism of Israel. If you're on, if you're in Israel, you're aligning yourself with Bolsonaro in, in Brazil and Orban in, in, in Hungary, right? So can you talk about how Palestinian Americans fit into that struggle and how those struggles fit into each other? 
Sure. Um, and but if you allow me, I do want to reflect a little bit about how the IRA definition is actually in continuity with a politics of dispossession vis-a-vis um, -vis Palestinians. One theme that has been um, ubiquitous in Palestinian poetry, literature, and, and scholarship is the figure of the present absentee, al-hadr al-ghayb. And usually we think of this category in relation to 1948 when um, Israel put out some security regulations um, having to do with the land, which essentially legislated the Palestinian as present on the land, but absent in the law. That is in 1948, 750,000 um, Palestinians become refugees, 150,000 Palestinians remain in what was then, what then became called Israel. How do we deal with these Palestinians? They came to be under the category of the present absent. In this sense, the IRA definition continues this politics of not naming the Palestinian. This began in 1917 with the Balfour Declaration, where Palestinian Muslims, Christians, and Jews, and here I really want to tag, Palestinians are not just Muslims. Palestinians are also Christians. Palestinians are also Jews, right? That category has been erased from the historical record. It's really important to continue thinking about all of the different ways Palestinians exist in the world, right? Um, in 1917, when the Balfour Declaration uh, expresses its support for the Jewish national home. It names the Palestinian Muslims and Christians that live in Palestine at the time as non-Jews. They are defined by what they are not. Okay, Jew Palestinian Jews in this period are about 5% of the overall population. So we are the subject and the target of the IRA definition, but we are not named in this way much of the Palestinian struggle is a struggle for a name, a struggle for the recognition of political rights. Okay, now let's step back. This is not just a Palestinian struggle. In fact, the Palestinian struggle with, an on, with the ongoing Nakba and the, and the ongoing violence of dispossession and the bifurcation of a people. Again, Palestinians exist not just in the West Bank, not just in Gaza. They exist inside the Green Line, like my spouse's family who live maybe 30 miles from their original village, um, basically in a refugee camp conditions. Or my own family who uh, took refuge in Lebanon, right? Or multiple other stories, right? So so when, when the elder generation of my family now passes, they can't bury their dead in the place that they were from, right? These are the stories that we have to hold on to, the multiplicity of those stories. At the same time that we understand that we are at a historical precipice in this moment where racialization, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, anti-Blackness is everywhere. And we have to make a decision. Do we insist on the exceptionality of each of our struggles or do we come together to fight for a different kind of future? The time is now to make that decision. And anybody who stands behind a legislation that basically criminalizes a critique of a state will not be an ally in that struggle. The rest of us are in alliance, join us.
Very powerful as well. It, it also brings to mind um, something that I've been thinking about a lot and my colleagues, I know at, at Palestine Legal and ACLU have talked about, which is when people say, you know, it's IRA definition, we need this because we need to fight anti-Semitism because current laws are not enough. The argument that you have to somehow sort of stovepipe the fight against anti-Semitism away from the fight against Islamophobia, racism, anti, all, all the different things out there is actually undermining the fight against the fight for um, the rights of everybody. It, it's, it doesn't help. It, it doesn't help the fight against real anti-Semitism, and it more broadly undermines the fight for the values themselves and the rights. Um, it's, it's something that I, I've struggled with a lot. We are running out of time. I want to come back to Ahmed. Um, and Ahmed, I don't want to put you. I don't want to put you on the spot. I mean, you you are you are young and you are articulate, and and what you've gone through is 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 really um gut-wrenching um you seem very you know strong for it and i guess I, I would love to hear from you where you see your your battle as as a palestinian as an american as a member of your generation and someone who's clearly committed to social justice and and deeply engaged where do you see this battle going for you um and i i ask you to keep your comments brief because we're going to wind this up as soon as you finish Yes, ma'am. Um, so first thing is I do want to get the Malcolm X quote correct. I finally got it. I pulled it up um, and I'm just going to read it really briefly and then I'll go into responding. So I am for truth no matter who tells it. I am for justice no matter who is for or against. I am a human being first and foremost and as such I am for whoever and whatever benefits humanity as a whole. And so that's the quote I was thinking of earlier. Um, and I think that quote fits perfectly into this question because you know, when you ask me what I believe my future is in social justice and what I believe the future of this fight is, it truly is people standing up and coming to the realization that one, like Shireen said, our battle against oppression is interconnected. Without each other, we cannot move forward and we cannot stand up and get out of this because we need the strength of every single person who's battling any type of oppression because of how vast the oppression is, we need all of our strength to fight and fight and keep fighting. Um, and so for me personally, where I think this is going, I know I wanna to go to law school after I graduate from Florida State. Um, so hopefully I'll be an attorney at some point. Um, and then beyond that, my goal is truly to actually work with the United Nations. Um, you know, That's something that I've always aspired for, I've always dreamed for is to actually get myself in to the ICC or get myself in a point where I can support people who work for the ICC. Because to me, seeing like the international criminal courts, seeing them be able to, for example, like, like Ms. Bensouda just did, like seeing her be able to stand up against Israel and be an independent prosecutor, even though how small of hope it created, the fact that it was even able to happen just gives me hope and gives me this sense of foresight that I wanna be one of these fighters in the future. Um, and so, you know, I, I think I'll just leave it there to keep it brief. It's a really um, inspiring place, I think, to wrap this up. I wish we could go on a lot longer because this is an amazing conversation, um, but we do need to wrap it up. Um, on behalf of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, I want to thank our panelists, Ahmed, Dima, Shireen. Thank you so much for participating. Thank you for your candor and your generosity and, and just amazing analysis. Uh, I think we all learned a lot. Um, I certainly did. 
Uh, for folks who want to learn more about the issues we've been discussing, you can follow Palestine Legal on Twitter. And Ahmed, I encourage you not to get on Twitter. It's a terrible, terrible place. Um, but, you know, that's what we all do now. So, but I'm on Twitter. Um, everyone check back on our website, www.fmep.org, for information about upcoming webinars. And please uh, check out the amazing work of our panelists today. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, and goodbye for now. Mm -hmm.